welcome to That's What She Pled with attorneys Christina Goldberg and Julie Lurson from Lurson Goldberg LLC, law powered by women. It's time to shake up the old standards of law and of business. Join these two witty, intelligent, and sassy female business owners who are taking their industry by storm, challenging stereotypes, and shattering ceilings. These two are on a mission to educate, empower, and support not only their own clients, but other powerhouse female entrepreneurs. Come for a laugh and stay for the vibe as Julie and Christina hold nothing back and share the truth of what it is to be female attorneys and business owners through discussion of current events, original stories, and inspiring guests. Now, on to the show. Happy Tuesday, everybody. This is attorney Christina Goldberg. I am here with my law partner, Julie Lurson. I keep trying to look at my camera, but I don't have to do that. So this is this will be fun. No, no more multitasking. We are, that's what she pled. So we are here on this bright, beautiful, wonderful Tuesday. In March. At, in March. And March just so happens to be Women's History Month. So we thought that we might take this opportunity to have, of course, another really badass female businesswoman on with us. And we'll introduce her in just a little bit. We thought we would take the opportunity just to kind of take a deeper dive into some of the progress of women over time, particularly our place in the workforce. Yeah. And that kind of ties in with our guest. So a little hint, but as always, I like to give a little perspective. So let me just jump right in and let's just talk about hit on some of the highlights of women in the United States in particular and we'll start out with the what what things were like back in the 19th century and before when women were chattel that's a fancy legal term it is what i like that, that word i know i know chattel that's the french <laughs> pronunciation is this, um is this? honestly when i was in law school I dated this guy for a long time. And one of the first things he said to me, and it was first year, we were one L's and we were in property law and he called me chattel. And I was offended then just as everyone should be now, because what chattel means is that we're property. And unfortunately that was, that was true. Basically women didn't exist apart from their husbands. Mm -hmm. Um, They couldn't vote. They couldn't own property. They couldn't file a lawsuit. They couldn't do squat. Um, we were sort of second-class citizens, and fortunately, that started to change during the 19th century so that by the turn of the 20th century, most or maybe all states had passed these laws called the Married Women's Property Act, which allowed them to do such things as own property in their name. Gasp. Wow. Um, own their own property. Keep, keep their, their own wages, wages. <laughs> if they happen to be working outside of the home. And then, of course, by 1920, the 19th Amendment passed, which gave us all the right to vote. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you know, women were, I guess, increasingly present in the workforce, at least for a while. And so within the Department of Labor, they created a specific Women's Bureau to sort of focus and track all things having to do with women in the workforce. And And when I was looking through some of that information, they sort of tracked the top 10 types of professions that women typically worked in over the decades. So like from 1920 to 2020 Mm -hmm. and sort of the overwhelming observation is not much has changed, um, which isn't to denigrate any of these professions and at, at all, 
Um, but women tend to work in very sort of traditionally women's kinds of positions. So secretaries, teachers, nurses, domestic workers, waitresses, cooks, you know, caregiving, caregiving type tasks. Mm -hmm. And obviously Mm -hmm. if you weren't in the official workforce, you were probably doing that kind of thing around the household. Well, thankfully, thankfully, as the, the number of, of women in the workforce has, has grown over the last hundred or so years, the overall percentage of women in these sort of more stereotypically female professions has dropped from about 53% to 32%. So women are starting to get more involved in entrepreneurial positions. And I know that I don't, I don't have a site for this, but Julia, I'm positive that we actually have more female law school juris doctorate candidates than male at this, at this point. I I do think the balance is tipped in favor of women. You're right. And I Mm -hmm. think that's probably also carries over to other sort of professional degrees, medical doctors, that sort of thing as well. So yeah, we're making progress. We've seen a 20% shift over the last hundred years. I think we'll be in in another hundred, right? Oh, there um, you go. I mean, it, so yes, we, the positive, you know, sort of view of all this is we're making progress. We've come a long way, baby. And that's, let me just as an aside, talk about when I was a kid in the 1970s, there was this cigarette marketing campaign specifically directed at women to try to get them to smoke Virginia Slims. And their tagline was, you've come a long way, baby. Anyway, oh. like I said, I digress. It's it's kind of, I mean, you know, the 70s, equal rights and all that. So I guess it was sort of an empowering idea. But looking back on in hindsight, it just kind of feels nasty. Poorly executed. <laughs> Poor, yeah. Poorly executed. Oh my anyway, gosh. Anyway, women are making progress, although we yeah. still have a, you know, there's still a hill to climb. And this is sort of, where we bring in our our guest today. Yes, we have actually a, a a really cool attorney with us in Texas. So we have Margot Pillisher. The spelling on that last name threw us for a minute, but we got it. And Margot is a super lawyer, a, a peer recognition uh, status, which is a really cool status to get. It She's is. a it magna is. cum laude undergrad of Tulane, a with top honors as a Spanish major. That's pretty cool. And, uh, and, oh, you know, just spent some time interning at the white house. It's no big deal. Really? Yeah. She's got some bona fides and she's a lawyer and, you know, we know everything from Texas is bigger. So, you know, Margo, (laughs) you were a natural selection. Um, bigger because you're, you're badass in your own right and you're empowered and all that sort of thing. Yeah. We were actually lucky enough to be connected to you through a contact Peyton tax. We've been working with Peyton for quite some time, trying to sort of do the the advertising thing, become a little more known here in Florida, obviously, certainly not in Texas, but Peyton said, my gosh, we're all pretty strong kick-ass women. And I know a strong kick-ass woman that you should talk to. And Margot, you tell us a, a little bit about your, your background. What do you do? Where are you from? Kind of just a, a, a snapshot of you. Sure. Um, well, thank you guys for having me. I'm really excited to, to talk to you guys today. I've been listening to the podcast to kind of gear up for today. And I'm, I'm a fan. <laughs> yeah. So like you said, I, I'm in Austin. I was actually born and raised here in Austin and kind of moved around a lot in my, you know, young adult life. I I was in New Orleans for undergrad, which actually my first year was Hurricane Katrina. Oh. Uh, and so wow. yeah. There you uh, go. Ended up 
my first semester in college back in Austin and then bounced back to Tulane, graduated from there, uh, and then actually did a year, a little over a year in Madrid, Spain, where I taught English before moving to New York City for law school. Uh, And I ended up, yeah, I ended up, I went to law school, graduated there in New York, and that's where I, where I started my legal career. Uh, And I was in New York for about 10 years and then moved back to my hometown about three years ago and uh, have been, you know, I raising my family here, working as an attorney and, and this is where we've settled and very happy to be back uh, around family. Right. Full circle. Yeah. So I I have a question. Yes. Um, And just, I guess, as backdrop, Christy knew she wanted to be a lawyer when she was like, I don't know, 12. Mm -hmm. And Julie took this long, this sort of long path, careful path. What's your path to becoming a lawyer? Did you always know you wanted to be a lawyer or? You know, the seed was there. My dad is a lawyer. Uh, I actually work with my dad now. He's one of the, he's the Ross in our, in our uh, law firm. Um, Yes. So, you know, his, he actually went, his law school career was his second career. And so he went back to law school when I was already, uh, you know, a young child, but I was, I have, you know, vivid memories of him practicing for the LSAT and giving, you know, throwing me questions (laughs) at five years old. And uh, so (laughs) still wanted to go. And And you still still wanted to. So, you know, I started negotiating at a very young age and, and really couldn't, couldn't shake it. But, you know, like you guys mentioned earlier, I did study Spanish in college and that is another passion of mine, just the language. And so I was, you know, I knew law school was most likely on the horizon for me, but I kind of wanted to explore uh, you know, in college and a little bit after that, whether maybe I was going to pursue, you know, a PhD or something in that vein with Spanish. But ultimately, you know, I, I thought law school was was going to be, even if I wasn't 100% sure I wanted to practice, I knew that it was a good degree to get and a good education to have and fell in love with it when I was actually in law school and, and you know, I'm very happy with, with how it kind of shaked out. So you practiced for 10 years in New York, which means you took the New York bar and I know you're Texas licensed. And I happen to know you also have your New Jersey license. So my question is, did you have to sit for three bar exams or did you get reciprocity? two bar exams. I did New York and New Jersey together. Um, and a lot of people in New York do that. I'm sure. Uh, because you can just add on the New Jersey. Well, now it's different. They have the uniform bar exam, but when I took the bar that wasn't around yet. And actually I don't know if New York or New Jersey participates, but anyway, it was, uh, the, the, the main part of, you know, the, the multi-state exam was one day, the New York bar was the second day. And then people who added on the New Jersey bar took that on the third day. And so that's what I did. And when in New York and well, in Texas, if you have worked for at least five years in another approved jurisdiction, one of which is New York, then you can wave into the Texas bar. And that's what I did. Very um, nice. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I moved to Florida and I'd been out of law school for 10 years as well, but Florida doesn't have reciprocity with anybody. So yep. I got to sit for a second bar exam. Yeah. 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 Florida says we're full. We, (laughs) we're not just handing it to anybody, but yeah, that works both ways. My husband is a lawyer also. And he, he and I, we knew we were going to move down to Texas and we planned our move so that we had the requisite five years of practice in New York before (laughs) we, before we got down here, because you guys all once is enough. 
Yeah, exactly. You're smart. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, so how did you ta- talk about the White House a little bit? What, did, what were you doing interning at the White House? How'd you get there? Yeah, that was my junior year of undergrad. I was, I double majored in Spanish and political science. So that was more of the uh, science track. But I, uh, one time, I, I think I got, saw an email in my, you know, at my Tulane.edu email and it was talking about possible internships for the next year. And one of them was the White House internship. And I said, that would be a very unique experience and, and really cool. So I applied for it and was lucky enough to be selected. Um, and it was, that was my, the fall semester of my junior year. Um, and I interned actually in the personnel office, which is sort ah. of like HR mm-hmm. um, for the semester. And, you know, just met a ton of people, got to live in a very cool city that I had never really spent any time in prior to that. And, you know, learned a lot. And it was something that is, you know, I'm still talking about many years later, a very, very cool experience. So was that at all? Did that play a role at all in your decision to, I I know you're, the, the other piece that I don't know if we've hit on yet is you're an employment law lawyer. You represent employees predominantly, I assume. Yes, I do. Um, I don't know whether you're being part of the personnel branch or department or whatever it is at the White House was at all part of your, how you, your interest was peaked. I'm not being very articulate here. Excuse well, me. no, I, I know where you're going and I wish I could say that it was, cause wouldn't that be a nice full story? Circle, right? um, yeah. full circle, but no, I, you know, that was a, a, just sort of a circumstantial placement and that's just happened to be where I, uh, was placed. I think, you know, it played to a lot of my strengths, which is, I like to talk to people. I like to be a little nosy, I guess. And that actually, you know, that <laughs> I feel like, I feel like HR, that was, that was something that I was able to do. You get to lot, know a lot, but actually that's something that I really enjoy about employment law. I really enjoy hearing what happens to people in their workplaces because it's a very unique position to be in where otherwise you wouldn't, you know, there would be, you wouldn't be hearing these, these things that go on. And that's, you know, not even to mention helping, you know, people who are discriminated against and retaliated against get, make themselves whole. And that's, you know, that's obviously the main part of it. Uh, but something, and that's, I think as lawyers, we all strive to do that, but particularly in employment law, I, I find that, yeah, it really, it does speak to my, uh, my eye for detail and my ability to, you know, question people a lot about uh, the different details of, of what's going on. Tell us sort of, we want to get into the cases that you commonly handle, but just so again, you're in Texas and the laws, the employment laws are, I don't know what they are. They may very well be different from what we have in Florida, Florida, we're an at-will employment state. What, what's the, kind of the status of, of employment laws. Do you, do you have to have cause to terminate someone in Texas? Is it an at, at-will state? Sure. Texas is an at-will state, absent any type of employment contract for a specific period of time. And, you know, it's, I tell my clients all the time, Texas law overwhelmingly favors the employer. The federal laws, you know, are there to protect employees and some states, California is one of them, New York is one of them, and there are others, uh, significantly expand those those protections for employees. Unfortunately, I practice in a state where, where the state has not done that, right? So there's nothing, uh, there are not any Texas law, well, with very few exceptions, there are not uh, many Texas laws that expand significantly the rights of the employee in Texas. So we pretty much operate under the federal law. And I will say that 
recently, and I believe it was September 2021, the, the Texas law was amended to uh, it, regarding sexual harassment, where ordinarily a, an employer needs to have 15 or more employees in order for these anti-discrimination laws to apply to them. But the Texas legislature changed the sexual harassment law in Texas where there are where there is no minimum number of employees now to bring, uh, you know, for an employee to bring a sexual harassment claim here in Texas. So that is OK. That's yeah, progress. So that was, yeah, a very good, a very good law. Yeah, for sure. And there were a couple of other changes that they that the that law put into effect, but that was the major one. It, it makes it easier for women who have been sexually harassed in Texas to bring claim. So just okay. maybe for um, the sake of people who aren't as conversant in employment law, the opposite of at will, and and I I feel like that this also there's a sort of a geographical divide, like perhaps north of the Mason Dixon line, it's you find less situations where there's at will employment as opposed to south. What I tell my clients when they when you know I'm doing an intake or my or any potential client is, you know, your company can fire you for any reason, uh, be it a good reason, a bad reason, or no reason at all. And you know, that's sometimes a surprise to to callers that we have to potential clients that we have, you know, and the, the other important thing to note, speaking to, you know, how difficult it can be for an employee in Texas to bring a claim is that the employment laws that that cover anti-discrimination and anti-retaliation in the workplace are extremely specific and extremely narrow. And you really, the facts have to be in a very specific pattern to have a claim. And there's a lot of of defenses that are available to the employer that will evade, help them evade liability. And, you know, I think a lot of people, besides being generally uninformed about their rights in the workplace, are surprised to hear that, you know, it is legal for your boss to uh, yell at you and her and bully you. I mean, that's, a, those are a lot of, of people call us and say, you know, that's what they're experiencing. But unless it's based on your belonging in a protected class, which are generally age, race, disability, gender, gender identity. Uh, there are a few others. Those are the ones I'm thinking of off the top of my head. Um, of course, sex-based uh, discrimination as well. But unless that bullying or that harassment is based on the employees belonging into one of those classes, the, the law doesn't cover that. The law doesn't protect them. That's and it can reason. be a slippery slope, I think, right? Like this. So there's you can make an argument on either side. I, I like to, to devil's advocate things. Sometimes you can make an argument on either side, you know, what's going to prevent someone from going to work, doing something wrong, being yelled at, and then getting fired and being angry at that and, and, and filing suit. On the other hand, if you're really going to a, an absolutely abusive environment every single day, well, you do have as the employee, I mean, you have the right to, to change that environment for yourself. So it's sort of like, where's the balance between being accountable for for one's own decisions to to put yourself in that scenario, but also holding an employer accountable for, well, now what do I do? I'm miserable. Um, and and where do I go? It's kind of a tough balance, but it's certainly Texas is is right on 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 board with with with, with, with Florida. Florida. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's uh, and that's not that's not surprising with with the way things are right now, certainly at least politically and and our legislatures and such. But so what are some of the cases that you commonly, what do you see most? You know, we see a lot of claims that that have to do with every protected class. I would say the you know we get a lot of of 
disability-related calls. So that's the Americans with Disabilities Act. Mm -hmm. We get a lot of race-based calls, which is Title VII, uh, which protects members of protected classes, including race. A lot of age, which there's the Age Discrimination and Employment Act and the Older Workers Benefit Protection Act, which protect um, workers over 40 and older. Um, Yeah, people 40s old. (laughs) <laughs> and I was, and then we get a lot of, a lot of sex-based discriminations that includes sexual harassment. It includes anti well, discrimination based on the fact that somebody is a woman mm-hmm. um, and that there's other laws that, that cover things, you know, related to employment, such as compensation. So the equal pay act is something that, you know, I like to focus on. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I've uh, lately, especially been getting a lot more calls about People's with people with disability and definitely race discrimination as well. Hey, sorry for the interruption. I know you're listening to the That's What She Pled podcast, and I am so happy you're here. If you have any questions, please head over to lawpoweredbywomen.com or look in the show notes to find out how to reach us. We would love to hear from you. How do you go about I mean, if you, if you can tell us or are willing to tell us, so how would you actually go about it? It's it's really easy, right? To make a claim. Hey, I didn't get hired for this job because, or I was fired from this job because how do you, what process do you actually take to, to show that? Sure. Well, a lot of it, like I was saying earlier is it's really fact heavy and something I enjoy about employment law is I get to learn a lot about different industries, right? I've had clients in the restaurant industry or in media um, or, you know, just, a lot in technology, especially here in Austin, there's a lot of tech companies Mm -hmm. here. And so it's really about understanding the business that my client is or was in so that you can understand sort of, or anticipate the, the arguments that the business is going to make for themselves. Cause there's a lot of, at different points, there are a lot of defenses that they have that, that are based on whether their decision was reasonable to the business or whether it was, you know, not, it was not discriminatory because of Mm -hmm. different different things that they might say about their business judgment. But um, so, like I said, it's a lot about learning the, the business of the, of the client. And um, we, we look at discrimination and then retaliation. So a piece of advice that I always give to clients is if you feel like you are being discriminated against based on your belonging to a protected class, go ahead and make a complaint. A lot of people will call us before they've made a complaint to their company, to HR, to a manager or uh, someone higher up because they're afraid of retaliation. But what the the truth is, is that once you've made that complaint, that mm-hmm. actually puts you into a, a separate protected class of somebody who has complained of discrimination and that the law protects you from being retaliated against. And so that's the piece of advice I always give. And then interestingly, whether or not the discrimination complained of ends up being found to actually have been discrimination, that retali- you know, the fact that you made a good faith complaint of discrimination will protect you as from retaliation as somebody who believed that they were being discriminated against, whether or not the court ultimately determines that the discrimination occurred or not, or I should say the the jury. But that was going to be my question is your typically your jury trials if you if you're going to go to trial? Yes. Well so something I haven't mentioned at all is the EEOC. And that mm-hmm. is the, of course, the administrative body that oversaw that, that yeah, oversees these anti-discrimination laws. And it's, that's an absolute prerequisite for right. bringing a lawsuit under any of these laws that I've mentioned. So you have to 
file an EEOC charge and go through their process and receive a right to sue letter at the end of their process before you're ever able to go, you know, to a courtroom and and have your day there. So, you know, the majority of my practice is actually out. It's actually before the litigation stage because we have, you know, we are often able to negotiate settlements during that EEOC process, whether it be through mediation or through just negotiation by the parties. And that's sort of the state of employment law as it is now. But yes, generally, you know, if there are, there are some cases, a, a portion of our cases, which are litigated. Um, and yes, we're, we are doing that. We're demanding jury trials. And oftentimes, however, the employer will have the client by the time they get to be our client has already signed an arbitration agreement. And so yeah. we're either, you know, either facing the arbitration or we've got, you know, or we will go go the litigation route in court. And just, I guess, maybe to get into more of a legal technicality, if you are a member of a protected class and you feel you've been discriminated against in terms of defending those claims, I I assume that there's a higher burden on you that you would have to overcome. Sure. So once the, once the claimant or the, you know, the plaintiff as it were, makes their prima facie case of discrimination, then the burden shifts to the employer to show that there was a non-discriminatory reason for their firing, their termination, right? Let me think of a of an easy example. Well, I, I'll do it without an example because I, I think it might take too long to think of a simple one. But at that point, then the burden will shift back to the plaintiff to show why the proffered reason by the business is pretextual. Okay. And so that's kind of, that's how it goes. Um, and that's, that is a burden shifting framework that we often see in, in these cases because they, the business of course is not going to say, yep, that's why we fired you because you're a woman, right? They're going to say, oh no, we fired you because of your tardiness. And here's, mm-hmm. you know, the five write-ups for tardiness that you've had. And uh, right. so that's why I say that the facts really play into it and timelines of what happened can really play into it too. For example, you know, in that scenario that I just said, well, it really depends on when this person made their complaint of discrimination, right? So if they, if they made their complaint, Hey, I'm being discriminated against because I'm a woman. And then after that is when the write-up started, you know, that's going to play in the plaintiff's favor, right? That's going to show, well, no, those write-ups were retaliatory because of her complaint of discrimination. Whereas if the same is, you know, if she makes her complaint and then the business is actually able to show, hey, these with this tardiness problem and these write-ups started before she ever made her complaint, then that's pretty damaging to, to a, a claim of, of a discrimination or retaliation, well, especially to retaliation. I'm curious, you're a woman, you practiced for 10 years in New York. What about your own personal, just sort of the subtle differences in terms of maybe how men and women in the courtroom or before judges and that sort of thing. I don't know if you've had any experiences or observations sure. or covert sorts of differences. Well, I can definitely speak to, you know, my experience in New York and I just clarify, I lived in, in New York for 10 years. I practiced for five. Okay. Uh, and then as soon as I had that five years, I you're out. got back <laughs> down to Texas. But, um, you know, in what I was really lucky in New York, because I got my that's where I started, you know, my career, but I, I would go to court five days a week. I mean, it was the, the practice and I practiced PI when I was there too. And so, and I originally started in criminal defense and then did the PI for a little bit, but the, the model there is every, well, 
in PI, you know, you're, you're litigating everything. And so every, but in New York, especially there all, there's all these conferences leading up to the trial and those are all in court. Whereas in federal court and, and in Texas state court more, you know, there's fewer court appearances and fewer opportunities to actually go to court. But in New York, I was there daily and I was fortunate enough to get courtroom experience, right? I tried cases and argued motions, et cetera. But I would say that, you know, when you are physically in a courthouse and you're seeing all of the other attorneys that are arriving in the mornings every day, and you're in this in waiting to be called for your motions and you look around and, you know, you're one of only, mm. I don't know, a few women in a, in a sea of, you know, men, it's, it, it can be, you know, you, you notice that. Um, and especially as a younger lawyer, when I, when I first started, it was intimidating. Um, I was, you know, against men who had been doing this for 20 years. And I was, you know, a couple of years into my career. Um, and I, I think I got a lot of, you know, I, I would say people tended to underestimate me and I don't, you know, it's hard to untie youth from or inexperience from the fact that I was a woman, but I also, you know, had male colleagues who were also just a couple of years out of law school and they were, you know, not getting the the kind of mm-hmm. comments or behaviors that I would get. And, you know, I had a boss who she was my, my boss at my second job, which is the the job that I started pra- uh, trying cases uh, when I was there. And, you know, she was a, she had come up in a generation where, you know, before women were, were before there were more women than men in law school, right? Like you were saying at the top of the show. And she had, she took a particular interest in mentoring young women and young women lawyers and championing us and telling us, Hey, I, I know you, you know, I know it's, it's unique to be a woman in this position and I did it and you can too. And so she was very encouraging, gave me a lot of opportunities and, and really taught me a model for what it's like to, you know, support newer women lawyers. And that's something that I try to do, you know, today. Yeah. It's so important to have somebody mentors mentors on your side. And it's funny because I mean, the same, same with me and it's not even, I don't, luckily I don't, I can't name a time that I have felt like employment wise, I have been treated differently as a woman than, than as my male counterparts, but certainly in the courtroom, Mm -hmm. um, by, by colleagues, by opposing counsel, there are absolutely times that, I've been, I mean, comments, just filthy comments. You know, if I, if I go to a hearing and win and my male counterpart is pretty, I mean, I've handily handed his rear end to him. They don't, they don't like that. Nobody likes that. I don't like that when that happens to me either, but it's fascinating to go out in the hallway and grab an elevator and have this, this male attorney basically get on the elevator and say, you know, the only reason you won is because you're, you're pants are too tight or your, your shirt's too low, or because the the judge found you attractive. No, actually, I think the reason that I won is because I prepared and I whooped your Mm -hmm. ass, but that's okay. You can tell yourself whatever you need to tell yourself to sleep at night. So it's, it's that sort of thing. And that's really pervasive. I mean, that's among, among competition, even here locally. I mean, Julie and I both face it, you know, you, you sort of come across a a male colleague and all house house business. It must be really hard being a woman. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I'm actually doing pretty well things things that are uttered that yeah. <laughs> never yeah. probably cross your counterpart's mind if they were speaking to 
a male. There's definitely a difference and a, and a, a, an age factor in it, but I love it when people walk into a courtroom thinking, oh, this, this chick, right. This is fine. This How is hard. Easy. Can this be right? Yeah. That's the best. And I use and it you to you outwork, advantage. outwit, out. That's what I was going to say. You learn to outwork them. And, and that's the only thing that you can do to, you know, to make sure that you're doing your best. And, and, you know, if you do that, and I, especially, you know, my first couple of trials, I was brand new. I had no idea what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I was up against these, these men who had been doing it for a long time. And I, okay. you know, my dad, my dad was helping me out and I would talk to him about the cases and tell him dad, I don't know what I'm doing. And he would tell me work hard, just prepare, be prepared. Mm-hmm. And that's all you can do. And it would, I, it would surprise me time and time again. I, if I did that, I did, a, you know, I would be often successful and the people, the men who maybe thought, maybe looked at me and thought, Hey, this, you know, this will be easy to do. I don't need to work that hard would be surprised. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, that's kind of something I tell myself all the time is as long as I'm doing everything that I need to do to be prepared, then, you know, it's, it's probably going to work out. Okay. And I can be proud of, of what I've done. Absolutely. Yeah. What prior preparation prevents poor performance, that whole, there is nothing better than being prepared and knowing your case that intimately to, yeah. yeah, That when, you know, you've got somebody else having to flip through and go, ah, well, your honor, I'm not sure. Oh, I got it. Hang on. I'll step in. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's 36 line 12. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I have it marked right here. Here's, Here's a copy for the court. Um, yep. yeah, I think oh, it's, gosh. you know, the, the P P to the fifth or whatever prior preparation. I mean, it's gender immaterial. However, our life experiences have taught us that we tend to be underestimated. And I suppose, at least in my own experience, sometimes I, I unfortunately think that about myself. I think the, the good that comes out of that is I am going to be well-prepared. I am going to work really hard. I'm not going to take my opponent for granted. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the end, hopefully the, the party with the better argument is the one who wins and it has nothing to do with yeah. what we look like or yeah. our gender. Yeah. Hey, let's, let's, you know, let's segue to something a little lighter a little as we lighter. try to bring this in for a close. <laughs> and let's just talk about like, Margo, you work hard plainly and you are busy with work. And I know you have three kids and a family. So like, what, what does Margo do for Margo? Just for Margo? What do you do for fun or to relax? Well, I, I actually have to think about that a minute. Yeah, I, she have, said, I, I know, I know. It's a hard one, isn't uh, it? Surprising. I do have three kids and my youngest is a, is a baby. She's six months. So I've oh, been yeah. very busy the last period of time, but I, you know, I really enjoy reading. Uh, I like to read like John Grisham novels. That's my kind of <laughs> guilty pleasure. pleasure. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot kind of mi- Busman's holiday, <laughs> stuff like that. Uh, I like to cook. So I am always, I, I, I don't know if I can say that's just for me because I'm obviously cooking for my family, but I enjoy experimenting and reading about food and I consume a lot of food media. So food podcasts and cooking podcasts magazines as well. So I, you know, that's a hobby of mine. Yeah. And I, uh, I spend time with my kids. I mean, that's, I know that sounds yeah. cliche, but it's, you know, I don't see them during the week very often because they're at school and I'm working and you know, it, it's busy in the mornings and the evening. So those weekends when I can just relax with them is, is, is something yeah. I really yeah. am loving these days. And 
you know, they grow fast and it's the really days true. Are long and the years yeah, that by. Exactly. So, right. Exactly. And it, but it's good to have interests that are just yours. And I guess some of them benefit other people too. For sure. <laughs> because, because someday they will be, you know, grown and flown and, you know, they'll have good roots, but if you've been totally immersed in work and family then. Anyway. Yeah. I try to, I try to maintain my, my reading hobby when I can and, and definitely cooking as well. So I'm working on it. Yeah. Well, Margo, it's been such a delight to have you joining us, join us today. If people it's been so fun, thank you. Wanted to find you. How would they find you? Well, uh, go to our website. We've got rosslawgroup.com. Uh, you can hit me up on LinkedIn and, uh, or send me an email. I mean, I'm always down to chat. So, okay. Awesome. And we'll just, just it's Margo M-A-R-G-O in your last name, P-I-L-L-I-S-C-H-E-R. So that's it'll be where, in the show notes too. I think yes, your, we'll have in the show notes LinkedIn and that's where and you your, can, can find you on LinkedIn profile. So. Yeah. Perfect. You've oh, been so fun, Margo. Thank you. thank you. Thank you so much. Thank for you guys. Thank you and, so much. And happy women's history month, everybody. Hopefully yes. this has been a sober, but enlightening and, and positive sort of experience. Yeah. Well, then know your rights, right? Exactly. That's the important part. So this has been the That's What She Played podcast. We are Christina and Julie. We are law powered by women. We are in Lakewood Ranch, Florida, and you can find us at www.lawpoweredbywomen.com. Uh, you can find us on LinkedIn. You can shoot us an email. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us. We can find us. Anyway, y'all have a great week and we will talk to you next time. Bye everybody. Thank you for listening to That's What She Pled podcast. Don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Larson Goldberg lawyers. The content has been made available for general informational and educational purposes only and may not constitute the most up-to-date legal or other information. The content is not intended to be a substitute for legal advice from your individual attorney, and the information provided does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice.